Welcome back to the Such Nerds podcast. I am Jason from Hartford, Connecticut, with my co-hosts... Peter from Long Island. And Dan from Los Angeles. And welcome to Season 3, Episode 3. We are reading Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. We're on the third book. It is called Second Foundation. And we have just read chapter 7 through 11. And I think we're going to open uh, open today's podcast with a little fan mail. Jason, I'm rather embarrassed to say that we received no fan mail after oh. last week's podcast. We did such an amazing job podcasting. Addressing all that. the issues. There's no questions. There's no questions left. Have. I'm thinking Including, would I like a hot poker in my eye? <laughs> I'm thinking that, uh, you know, it was Martin Luther King Day last week, maybe. You know, federal holiday, mail, delay issue. Oh, possibly. I see, I see. Okay. Could have something to do with it. That's true. Yeah, I also know that, uh, you know, with Omicron on the rise, there have been a lot of, like, you know, worker absences that have slowed things down. So let's chalk it up to COVID-related workplace mm-hmm. absences that has that was omicron omicron anyway it's all greek to me clearly <laughs> nice so let's chalk it up to some environmental uh variables outside of our control so we will conserve some time next week for any catch-up on fan mail that may have been delayed I'm looking forward to the backlog of fan the ba- mail. it will clear the it's backlog be next week i'm sure it'll buried be buried in fan mail <laughs> You know, again, I, I have to check myself because we should probably call it listener mail. It's some of these, the folks, they just, they don't sound like fans so much when they, you know, rib us and, and dig and, you know, poke at our uh, vulnerabilities. So uh, maybe we should just call it listener mail, even though there are some yeah. fans, you know, sprinkled in the mix there. Yeah, it's like like the old Howard Howard Stern quote where the people who like him listen for a certain amount of time and the people who hate him listen for three times as long. So <laughs> definitely the, the way things go sometimes. Drive people to the right end of our audience. They love right. us because they despise us and think we're incompetent. We take it either way. doesn't matter. Engagement right. is engagement one way or the other. There is no such thing as bad publicity. Right? Exactly, exactly. And I, th- I think, Dan, you, you said it best. If you haven't wanted to kill someone, do you, have you really loved them? Right. Yes. And I think that is a little bit of a challenge to the old adage of our boy Salver Harden that violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. It may just be the last vestige of loving emotions. Mm -hmm. You know. So all right. Speaking (laughs) of loving emotions, this week I feel like we got a good dose of humanity uh, out of uh, Asimov. Well, let's yeah, let's give Dan the floor maybe uh, because I think. you know, as our resident expert in summarizing the, the events of uh, of the Foundation novel as we go through here, um, he uh, he deserves the floor to get us up to speed on this week's content. Take it away, Dan. Thanks, Jason. So the search by the Foundation section begins with expiring author Arcadia Durrell, granddaughter of our friends Torin and Beta, being visited by Peleus Anthor, who has come for an audience with her father. Meanwhile, the first speaker of the Second Foundation educates a young student on the workings of the Selden Plan and the Prime Radiant. Anther Durrell and a group of scientists meet to discuss Anther's discovery that Foundation or brain scans are showing manipulation, likely by the Second Foundation. 
plan is made to send Homir Mun to Kalgan to investigate the mule's knowledge of the Second Foundation. Unbeknownst to them, Arcadia is listening in, plans to stow away on Mun's transport. The first speaker and his student discuss the First Foundation's change of affect due to their discovery of the Second Foundation and the threat that represents to the Selden plan. At the section's end, Darrell discovers Arcadia's departure while Mun is surprised to find her accompanying him to Calgan. That was an excellent job at summarizing a lot of stuff, Dan. Thanks. I was reading it. I was like, how is Dan going to summarize this thing? <laughs> he did it again. We were wondering early on, or, or torn, and we saw the mule section when he looks, and the mule was there kind of a few years down the line, was he in the picture? And then you wonder from the foundation side, since we ended the last book with Torn and Beta being in the picture, what whether they were there and sort of is the answer. You know, their, yeah. their progeny is in the picture. Our lady, our Katie going the, on. There you go. The progenitor, right? She seems to be very much like her grandmother, I guess you might say. She's mm -hmm. into, she's really operating on another level from what you imagine a 14-year-old kid, quote-unquote. precocious and intuitive and a little bit nosy. But at the same time, it's not like her father's kind of a schmo. Like, sometimes you have these schmo characters. It seems like her father kind of has his act together. He just might be, like, too interested in his work to take care of his parenting, maybe. <laughs> I think she's she's raising herself, right? He probably yeah. doesn't. He probably just has to sit back and like make sure that nothing catastrophic happens. But it sounds like she's pretty kind of ahead of the curve as far as well. There's there's but, also that the housekeeper that's also you know semi. Sounds like she's semi responsible for the care of Arcady. Except, except when she's on a month long vacation. But he seems like he said I I was I thought about his parenting. I was like that seems very torn esque. His, his sort of like loose affiliation with what's going on and like matter control what's going on. <laughs> he's his father's son. Yeah, he's his father's son. Like, sorry, I was trying to make the sandwich and uh, you know, my child, my child, like clearly they just disappeared onto a spaceship. Like, sorry, I've also been mind controlled by a mutant. <laughs> God forbid I stick up for some kind of freak on a planet during my nightmare. <laughs> That's definitely out of character for me. But I don't know, I guess. I don't know. His wife, I don't think, makes an appearance. So who knows what? What? Um... No, she died. She. They. Yeah. They talk about how Arcady talks about how she spent some time on um, Tranter. Yeah, on Tranter. Out there, places. Peter. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, that's uh, where they were when the mule. So they must have been making use of their downtime pretty effectively. And then stayed on Trantor. Reproducing? What are you saying? <laughs> exactly. So, and then, uh, you know, they stuck around after the mule departed them in French, quote unquote, friendship, um, back to Calgan, where he apparently ran his ship from the helm of Calgan for the balance of his time as, uh, you know, as the uh, whatever emperor of his self proclaimed galaxy or whatever. Um, yeah, and then so she was like a couple years old, right? When they she was three, three when they when they left, and she doesn't remember her, it. Her mom had already passed away. Yeah. Hmm. So all this talk about Tranter, like at the end of the chapter, uh, chapter eleven, I'm like, we still don't really know where the Prime Radiant is, right? Like where Second Foundation is, so to speak. Like it's it's uh it's it's base. I'm wondering if it might be on Tranter instead of on um, uh, whatever the planet is, Calgan. Um, but you last time you were saying, Peter, because I thought of this when that came up, and because they don't indicate where it is, but you brought up a very salient point 
last time about the second foundationers having to look at the other people that they influence. So unless they're making trips to the place, how do they know and how can they watch who's who needs a little shave of the of or sanding of the corner of their memory um, mm-hmm. or a plateauing of their Just memory uh, bandpass filter? Yeah, yeah, it's like a it's like a clipping. It clips the peak off of your brainwave or whatever, right? Plateau, right? So how are they going to do that if they're kind of living in some other place and they have to travel, like somebody's going to see them going back and forth. I think you were, you know, personally, I think you were onto something that they are local to some area. And I, I don't know what better area than, than Calgon because all the stuff is going on, going down on Calgon. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're probably kind of like a, like they have cells that they work in almost like a, like a terrorist network. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, but you still have a location for the prime radiant, right? That thing's not moving. And so like, there's a good possibility that it could be on Trantor, um, like, and just never moved, right? How are you going to move the sophisticated piece of equipment, uh, without somebody knowing, uh, and so maybe it's buried in the basement of the university or it's buried, you know, in the hotel that gal, Dornick stayed in or something yeah, right. like that, you know, throwing it way um, back. Yeah. So like the, the prime radian is going to be one place. Right. But that's not necessarily like where the intelligence network of the second foundation is going to be dispersed to. Right. Yeah. You don't keep, you keep CIA headquarters in Langley, but then you keep the spies in Russia. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's like they mentioned, he mentioned the first speaker talks about like some of the, you know, the hierarchy above him. It seems that's somewhat detailed the quantity of people associated with it. So you got to imagine that since their their secrecy is so paramount, they're probably like you know spread out in various. Well, the other thing is they probably need people in different places. I mean, if that's true, maybe it was it was a ruse, but I think he it sounded like it was a sincere representation of the second foundation ability when the mule was confronted by uh, by the speaker at the time. Right. I mean, would they know, right? Would, wouldn't that maybe have come up like within the inner, inner dialogue of the mule? Like, but he was lying, yeah, maybe. you know, or something like that. Like, I feel like there would be that flash of intuition just because of how the writing was done. It was very intense and very internal monologue-ish, you know? Like, so you would like detect these little vari- variations. Right, right. And when a you're focusing on your second. brain power, yeah. why would you even move a, a fraction of your cognitive ability to tell a lie about something, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. We have a, in, in beta's line, I think uh, we kind of talked about it, but we have a new kind of lead character and it's this 14 year old Arcadia. And, you know, I was looking at the back of the, uh, of the book again, just to, you know, we don't really have a lot of these little snippets up front. We do get some of Arcady in the beginning of Chapter 7, talks about her being actually becoming a novelist, right? So it indicates that she actually is successful in her career. So she probably right. doesn't She probably doesn't die on the trip to Calgan, I'm guessing. Spoilers. Uh, but, I was, but I was looking on the back of the book, and it, it, you know, it says for the second part, the fate of the Foundation rests on this Arcadia Durrell. Apparently, she's a, a key cog in the machine of the search for the second foundation and protecting the second 
protecting the first foundation from the second foundation. Now, um, I think the first point, I'm already getting lost in too many thoughts here, but the first point is that we've got another lead character who is female, which is nice. You know, there's like balancing the equation a little here. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. And she's also exceptionally young, which is another, I thought, interesting choice by uh, by Asimov to not just, you know, go with adults, but actually, you know, show a little bit of youthful energy as potentially benefiting the future of humanity. So Asimov had two daughters, I believe. And I'm wondering if the age of Arcadia has anything to do with like the age that his daughters were when he wrote this. But yeah, I, I also got a kick out of the fact that Arcadia at one point when she is kind of flirting with like this older, older man about whether or not she's going to let him in her window. She's like, she pauses to try to figure out like how she's going to introduce herself. And she's like, I always hated the name Arcadia. It sounded so childish. Call me Arcady. Right. It's totally different. Totally, totally different. different. Like, yeah, because adding the like I E sound or Y sound at the end of something definitely makes it more sophisticated, not less. So, right, right. Any thoughts, Dan? Yeah, I thought that was a little. I mean, it, it seems like it's very interesting in the beginning when when she's like making her face, trying to like look at it in the mirror and stuff. You know, I mean, you think about somebody who's fourteen. You know, and obviously it can vary a lot depending upon each individual person. Some people can be very mature at 14. Some people can be extremely childish, but yeah, that's, that's what sort of snuck into me a little bit. She's trying to pretend she's this grown up and she's involved in their plans and she's snooping in. She's making decisions that she's going to go on this trip without them. She's acting very mature, but at the same time, she's still clearly not, you know, she's still a young girl with regards to, you know, how she carries herself in the world. The point, your point about the uh, 29 year old guy at the window, um, yeah, that was a little bit creepy for me. I'm not entirely sure. If if my my daughter has dude twice her age just at the window and and just lets him in, has no, has yeah. an inkling of who he might be or that he might be somebody that her father's expecting, but just kind of yeah, like she's, oh, she's well, following all hunches. Yeah, yeah like yeah, if you're, <laughs> the hunches she, of a fourteen year old are highly reliable, Peter. Yeah, she said she right, exactly her father was expecting <laughs> so somebody. Worldly. So. You know, and the guy dropped his suitcase. So clearly, those two things. So now he's safe. It's he safe, dropped yeah. the suitcase. So now he's not a threat anymore. Well, then she, she tells him that window. She tells him that there's a, like electrified window gate or something. He's like, oh, well, no, no, no. And she's like, actually, there's no electrified window yeah, gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She totally blew her cover. <laughs> very, the whole thing was very weird. Yeah, a little it was bit. a little awkward. Very on brand for Isomoff, a little I'd bit. Say. And I thought it was also interesting that they indi- that she indicates fourteen as the age at which found you know people of the foundation or of the future at that point are considered to be adults. Was that a reflection of the age that people considered people to be adults at the time he wrote this in the fifties? I don't think so because it was still like. You had to be 17 to join the military and 18 to vote. And yeah, what is the standardized year, like year of the planet that they're on? Maybe she's a sophisticated young woman and we just are writing her off as Like 14. it's two Earth years equals one. Right, exactly. One Calgany like year. I don't think years. so. There's got to be like, it's got to be, if that was the case, then he'd have different languages and different measurement units and all that stuff. I think he's, 
brought it back to earth. Jason, you'd units. be a young man of 19. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> instead of an el- instead of a elderly, what would they call yeah. them? Elderly, elderly something year olds. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're 14, you know, people who are 41 seem really old, but they're ancient. Yeah. At the same time. They're ancient. Yeah. You know. They're almost three times your age, basically. Yeah, literally. Yeah. So, yeah, so I thought that was that was uh, an interesting choice. And uh, then the other piece of it was that probably is worth a little bit more discussion. And I'll just kind of open it up and see what you guys have to say. The second foundation is identified as a threat to the first foundation by Dr. Durrell and his and his and the and the Durrells colleagues. and his yeah. colleagues, his his Motown group. Anther. <laughs> and uh and also within the com- the communication between the second foundationers they talk about this kind of elaborate scheme to separate the human race into these like two species of subhumans and superhumans and i think like it's good that we have you know a mix on this podcast of like peter and the rest of us to be able right. to reflect both sides of the of the um, perspective there. Well, um, as an Ubermensch, <laughs> I feel that it's my duty to rule, you know, those that are less gifted than myself. But that's exactly what they say. They say, like, the second foundation is um, is planning to cultivate the masses, basically, via the first foundation, and then sweep in at the last minute and rule them as this benevolent dictatorship at the very end as the elite aristocracy of, you know, psychologically advanced humans who are now like a separate species after a thousand years or something like that. That's the impression I got. What do, what do you guys think about that? I mean, I didn't see them as two species. I just saw them as different classes of the same race, basically like in, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's weird and also makes sense from the point of view of the second foundation. I mean, it seemed very benevolent at first and it was like, and then we'll sweep in and take over. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly what the first foundation is afraid of. Like that you're doing. That's so exactly like what them, the mule did. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the mule did it by force and it was just him. Right. There wasn't a whole class of people holding, holding, you know, the masses at bay. Well, this is converted, uh, right? He yeah. Converted at the top of society. You, but you there, he didn't like, have like a dynasty, right? Yeah, you're right. Go ahead, Dan. You mentioned it like they're not different species, but if you look at how the, you know, the first, the second foundation psychologists are communicating with like nonverbal gestures, you know, they're almost like the rudimentary form of, of a society where you have your former communication in your language. Like they're almost operating in an entirely different plane. Yeah. Can you go on on mute when Dan's speaking as a courtesy so that there isn't a whole bunch of like zipper noises and scritchy scratchy (laughs) stuff going on? That was my feet like moving on the couch. Also, I took his corduroy corduroy jumpsuit that he's wearing. That's what it was. The decibel level was nearly as high as Dan's voice. So that's the reason I'm pointing it out. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't matter too much whether it was cotton or synthetic or whatever the case but yeah i mean like some people communicate in in couch couch friction noises and other people communicate (laughs) unspoken gestures 
they were like, I guess when you're a superhuman, you don't have to use words. You can just like record scratches on your couch and people <laughs> understand. Well, so, well, like short, short, long. It's like, uh, exactly. It's like Morse code, except for Uber benches, I guess, maybe. But I mean, I was thinking that like, they almost are sort of operating like this a separate species because like, you know, if you're, if you're a first foundationer, let's say there's this big coming together and the second foundation shows up and they're just like, sort of like blinking the eyes or whatever, doing the switching of the nose. I'm sure the second foundations can understand spoken word. So they're probably, they're so far advanced in terms of communication. They are essentially like a superior race. I'm not saying that they deserve to rule them, but you know, if you're looking at them side by side, you know, one, one's definitely a higher order of society you'd think well the first foundation is going to be looking at all the second foundationers like who are these like neurotic Tourette's you know mm -hmm. you know convulsing faces in front of me like they're just going to like put them in an asylum or something right but then the second foundations have this mind power and they can switch mm -hmm. their brains yeah, yeah but wouldn't, they can't operate any nucleics so wouldn't like they do the same thing rural society as the mule did and just kind of you know, yeah, <laughs> the old switcher switch their motivations, yeah. give them the old switch power their down. Loyalties. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I mean, it, 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 with the back and forth of the chapters, it sort of sets that cadence up where you're like, okay, the, fir the first foundation years are not inept. You know, you think that back to some of the previous sections of the books where it's just like these hopeless kind of people, and you're pending towards the crisis, and there's words about the crisis, and yeah, they, they're, they're, they seem to be like two equally sort of engaged foes it's not like you have one super overpowering group and one kind of bumbling idiot group you know it seems like the, even the, the first foundationers that they've got together are still you know with the with the electroencephalograms and that type of stuff they seem to be relatively coherent force at least um as compared with you know probably not to the same degree as the second foundationers but you know in the same ballpark at least I have a small electroencephalogram machine and like it's it's pretty useful technology is for reading brain activity. Now, how you interpret that with what it means, you know, I guess is that that's where the, the secret sauce in, is whether you're conducting legitimate psychological or, you know, doing some sort of uh, race sort of optimization program. But, right. you know, it seems like that's the way you'd find out how people's brainwaves are working. Because they'll basically hook people up to them and be like, okay, I'll give you these sensors and we'll see what parts of the brain are firing. Okay, well, look, you know, obviously there's a, a lack in the amygdala or something or the, the uh, you know, the mesocortex or whatever, you know. But he's just making up guess. parts of the brain. Yeah. Mesolimbic cortex. The, the, the appendix, Meso cerebral temporal lobe. <laughs> Clearly now no you're just making up parts of the brain, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Basal ganglia over here making yeah, up parts there of you the go. brain. Listen, my corpus callosum is working just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> is your uh, ha-ha guffaw chuckalamus in good shape these days? <laughs> <laughs> Dan knows what I'm talking about. That's another podcast, Jason. Yeah, it probably is. Sorry. Welcome back to our Captain Underpants podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, Asimov indicates that, like, when he's talking about the risk of the first foundation exploring this science, you know, the science of psychology and, you know, their enhanced capabilities that is exactly the field that Dr. Durrell is studying. They warn that like in like long ago, somehow they know like 50,000 years ago 
somebody tried to use this technology to identify race differences and and psychologies why the coyotes from the roadrunners right right but yeah it's interesting yeah so that that uh that that's a good point dan because it that's identified as a threat to the second foundation right that the first foundation is enhancing their abilities in this field that they're not supposed to be that they're not supposed to care about they're supposed to care about you know machines and cars and and spaceships and rockets and but now they're getting into like they're studying themselves and it's almost like that uh point in human development where humans start introspecting and thinking about how they think and the theory of mind and all that kind of stuff it's like this transition of foundation one focused on the material and then turning and looking and looking internally again yeah i mean it seems like that should have happened a long time ago and almost did with their you know, pseudo techno religion, right? That's usually how those things start is like, there's some kind of spirituality and then like trying to understand like the nature of the universe and why things happen and, you know, trying to make some kind of order out of the chaos that happens in our everyday lives. And then, you know, eventually you get to a point where you're like, well, why do I do this? What are my motivations behind it? Psychology and, and how do I, you know, like you've never had to manipulate anybody in like foundation one. You haven't studied like negotiating. That's not like a thing we have to worry about. Everything's Starfleet. There's no money. What happened to our tin based economy? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you, if, if second foundationers can be bought, you know, they, they don't give a lot of mention of their society and how it works and what the underpinnings are and, you know, What's the, also, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of higher order psychological beings? Quasi Buddhist society who just have no, or no wants, so you can't really influence them because they don't have. You know, he talks about in the Prime Radiant section where he's like, "Oh, this is my section that I devoted my life's work to. This portion of the plan, like literally, like, and no one knows about it, and I'm not allowed to tell anybody about it, and nobody's name gets ascribed to it. But I spent my entire life working towards making sure that this section didn't go off the rails." He tells the kid about it, and he's like, "Yep, that was it." You know what they get for it? Nothing. Yeah. They get paid for it. And nothing. I'll be, I'll be Famous, long dead no, by the time this becomes you know, a like, fact, right? What exactly are you doing? You know, it's extremely noble and selfless, but it's kind of like, well, you know, what's the point of any of this? You know, right. how'd you get to be so yeah. seniorly driven outside of yourself? You know, you begs yeah, questions. Lots of manipulation how. from like emotional overlords that are much more Some proficient guy, than you. Early. In the past early indoctrination into an emotional based society. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No tin. I, I mean, at least it's a noble cause, right? Like we're trying to save humanity from years. Oh, of it is millennia right. of darkness. Right. You figure 40 years down the line, like how do you maintain that kind of discipline? You know, generation after generation or generation. when there's nothing. Yeah, you would like, think some, co- some corruption would leak in. Right. Or maybe all the other super empaths like detect your, you know, sociopathic empath, like coming up the, coming up the, the the chain. Maybe it's part of the motivation. Like we haven't really explored it and there's something else I want to touch on too here, but the part of the motivation may be that each foundation thinks they're going to kind of be on top. So they're like, you know, on the path and they're happy to kind of sacrifice along the way because they think they're going to be the ruling class. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll interested in, they'll be interested in sort of how, you know, that they let, like, you would think back to the first chapter where it's just these two little asides, doesn't say anything about 
you know, the foundation or who the people are, the, the various speakers. And then now you're getting a little bit more meat into how the foundation sort of second foundation sort of operates. It's very, you know, interesting. You almost begs more questions than answers about what's going on there and how does it work. And then the other, the other point is that the whole reason that this guy dedicated his life's work to trying to correct this one term in the giant equation that is psychohistory of the Selden plan is that, and he challenges his protege, right? He says, it's all pretty, it's all a pretty amazing and complete work of art, isn't it? And the guy's like, well, definitely. And he's like, wrong, it's not complete and it's not perfect, you know? So the whole like kind of secondary function of the second foundation is not just to like be this psychological focused second foundation, but to also kind of continually reevaluate the Selden plan and identify holes in the plan and recalculate and fix those holes with, you know, alternate paths or improve the probability of the desired path or whatever the case may be. But that's what he's explaining to this young protege. It's like, you have to go like solve this problem with the plan that could lead it off the rails and, and make sure it stays back on the rails. Kind of like maintaining their way on the golden path. You know? Exactly. And that's what it is. When they're talking about like the Selden plan, it's, it reminds me of this kind of these conversations like, you know, Paul had with Leto about the golden path and how, you know, he shares the visions of the golden path with his, you know, privy secretary and, and his key followers and stuff in, uh, in, in the God Emperor for sure. And there's this whole kind of interplay of people that play along the golden path in Dune. It feels very similar to this idea of like the, the path of psychohistory and all the interplay of these events and the cross sections and decisions and whatnot that has to happen along the way. Right. And like the Bene Gesserit are basically the second foundationers, right? These yeah. shadow yeah. manipulators trying to bring out some kind of master class of people or master mm -hmm. race. Right. Yeah. Perfect. The, the Obermensch. Yeah, in yeah. Uh, the Kwisat Hadrach, right? Kwisat Hadrach. Yeah, but ultimately, that since that since Foundation was written first, I guess it sort of just shows up differently in your mind because you have the Dune series as a platform when in actuality it wasn't written until 15 years after. You know, Sorry, did you say that Dune was written better? Is that what you said? No, I'm saying we read it first, so it's you think of it as sort of the comparison too. And so I I know what you said, Dan. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> And I mean, I think it's hard to avoid some of these topics, too, as a kind of space opera, kind of broad strokes sort of storytelling, right? I mean, there's, you know, Dune is very good at, like, making these smaller things, you know, getting really close to the action when really you're talking about these much larger subject matters, right? And that's kind of what I feel like, Isaac Asimov has come into kind of his own in this, uh, this third book and the last half of the second book, um, really kind of personalizing like these large scale dramas that otherwise like it's kind of hard to get emotionally involved in because they're, you know, essentially humanity is a bunch of aliens, right? Like they're, yeah, they're, we know they're quote unquote people, but you know, when, 
people don't act like people, then you have a hard time relating to them. I feel like we're really getting to see, you know, some some real humanity, especially with like Arcady and um, like her interactions with people. You can kind of like feel the affection. I at least I'm, I'm speculating here that his daughters were alive, but you can kind of feel the affection that Asimov has for his own children coming through with the storytelling elements of this 14 year old girl, you know, like her exuberance, her kind of precociousness, her irreverence, you know, Peter, what the black holes of space are you talking about? (laughs) I was like, I literally wrote, I like, uh, yes, exclamation point when we revisited great space. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I highlighted both of them. Because I was like, this is a, this is one. Yes. <laughs> so Anthor, right? The middle-aged 29-year-old punctuated his initial remarks with clenched fists and torn hair. And from there, passed on to bitterness. Great space. What are you waiting for? What are we both waiting for? Get the spaceport on the viewer and have them contact the Unimara is, uh, is I guess, the uh, the name of the ship. Yeah. And what's yes. the guy's name? It's like it's like Homer J. Man or something like that. Homer. Homer Munn. Uber Munn. And then, yeah. And then his response to, yeah, Dan, you said it. What in what the black holes of space are you to, to doing aboard this ship? Yeah, that's what yeah. Homer Munn says to her yeah. when she's like, you know, catching him late at night. Is Homer Munn <laughs> then 42 as well? or is he Homer Munn that? is like uh, over 40 for sure. Poor dude's yeah. in his bathrobe, just trying to get some like Z's. Yeah, he's just bit. trying yeah. to sleep on the floor of a spacecraft. There's well, now stuff. he's sleeping on the floor because there's a 14 year old girl in his bed. Yeah, I was actually relieved to find that out. Yeah, he did point that out. Shenanigans going yeah. on there. I mean, one of them spacecraft, she... and she's stowed away, so she's like waiting yeah. for the time to come out, and it's like, Hiding where is he going to go? Yeah. So I would like to thank you, Peter, because. Um, you used Arcadia's preferred name that she identifies with, and you didn't dead name her as Arcadia. So I just like to thank you for showing that respect. Hey, listen, man, I'm a I'm a man of the people, a man of the times. You're welcome, JC. No such yeah. respect. <laughs> so I was I was pretty excited about the the re, revisiting Great Space and then introducing yeah. what in what the what in the what, black holes, what the black holes of space, space yeah. are you doing aboard the ship? And he's got a bit of a stutter, Homer. And like, yeah. obviously, completely taken aback. You know that that um, you know he's got a he's gonna I mean, be accused of stealing think, a child. Yeah, I mean they're gonna get into port and be like, "Where did this girl come from, sir?" Yeah, the first person to board your manifest. Right, exactly. Like mule, you know how it goes. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I love the fact that like they chose him because he's like a mule fetishist. Yeah, Muliana. Right? Was, the uh, Muliana. Like that was an of, interesting of, word. Yeah. <laughs> he's collector like, of mule memorabilia. He's got like a mule hat that, with like a giant nose on it, like goofy ears, like you get it like with Disneyland or something. They've got he's got like a, a series big of fleshy Marianettes. nose on the front, but not yeah, like a, a not like a mule nose, like a big fleshy human nose. Yeah. 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 Like like uh yeah, exactly. Like a foam finger, except with right. the mule 
on it, you know, yeah. just for a giant number meal number one fan. That's a weird that. thing to be known for, yeah, right? But. It's like having it. It's like being the world's largest collector of Nazi memorabilia. Yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm a huge Mussolini, huge Joseph Stalin fan. Like, oh yeah, that doesn't break a b- yeah. bunch of questions. Why check out this price? Check out this this uh, mule Reich ch- uh, China set that I right, have. Right, right. You know. Yeah, it's just like that doesn't beg a lot of questions. Um, you know, it's like I have all this memorabilia from this historical figure, and it's like, well, yeah, I guess, but like in the most generous reading of it, but like, it started looking a little bit deeper. Yeah, I don't know if I would be stowed away on a spaceship in space with Homer Munn with this, yeah. just like boxes, all that's on a spacecraft, just boxes of mule of memorabilia to get signed, <laughs> got the poster <laughs> and stuff. It's like mule trading cards and mule, mule. He's, he's mule reading my mule, like as mule toilet like, paper reading material. Mule the pull, pull spring doll. <laughs> like he's a uh, yogurt or something. Yeah. Yeah. May the Schwartz uh, be with you. May the Schwartz be with you. What does mule, I don't know, do mule has a saying? I don't know. He got his visa sonar. Maybe the mule can play him a little, a few riffs for them. Melt your brain. Melt yeah, his brain a little bit. String? So, what would the mules, if the mule had to have a pull string doll, what would it say? Yeah, that's what I was getting at. We know what the know. Peter pull string doll would say. I say the most important thing. Exactly. Yeah, like exactly. Like being down to the skin. <laughs> the, 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 the I'm down to the skin. You know why they call him the mule, don't you? Oh, there you go. That's why they call me the mule. There you go. That's a good one. <laughs> the listeners could send us in some ideas of what we think we should have. Yeah. The uh, mule the, pull, the string. pull string doll. For our limited edition mule pull string doll. <laughs> Only available at uh, suchnerds.com. Sure. Whatever you say. $3,000 because we're going to make one prototype. That's how much it's going to cost. Oh, we can us sell to it to Homer Munn because he's, you know, he's the Pokemon collector of them all. Yeah. He's got to get them all, man. Muliana. Muliana. So yeah, he. I was interested to see what you know he because they're like, oh, he'll just go on vacation because you know he's the kind of guy who go to Calgan and like totally like stroll into the Mules area because he's such a Mule fan. Like no one's going to think anything different about it. And Everyone he's, really, he's been tracking this thrill. weirdo knows he's that, all about the mule. That's not questionable at all. He's got this small child with him. I guess he's a family friend, but like still, it's like yeah, he's like a, effectively mm. a niece, and he's like embraced as an uncle of the of the family to her. So yeah, no, it was very. The other thing I, I noticed, and I was looking back through my notes, we talked about elderly. Does she point? Uh, she points out that. That Peleus, the 29-year-old, is elderly. So the visitor was elderly, but very distinguished looking with curly brown hair and very blue eyes. A distinguished 29-year-old. somebody like that again sometimes when she was old herself. And it's like, then they talk, it's like, oh, he's 29. It's like, oh. <laughs> you can tell Isomov was still pretty young when he wrote this. And he felt like he was like wizened, right? Is that the word, Peter? Wizened? He was the wizest? Wizened. Yeah. He's a wizicist. <laughs> well, and the other funny thing that, that I... It's like the fact that she knew that he was coming to see her father because, because oh, that was easy. Last week he received a personal capsule. Keep to him personally with a self-oxidizing message. You know, he threw the capsule shell into the trash disinto, which apparently short for like nucleic trash sort of uh, disposal. The trash disinto. And yesterday he gave Polly, that's our maid, a month's vacation so he could visit her sister in Terminus City. And he made up the bed in the spare room. So I knew he expected somebody that I wasn't supposed to know anything about. So clearly, like, he just sort of, like, 
can't cover his tracks at all. He's like sort of bumbling and just doing whatever. And she's like reading between the lines. His father's son. Yeah, it's that's a that's a that's a Darrell if I've ever seen one. You know, yeah. it's like George, just, like George Jetson <laughs> from the future. And uh, he's just you know, burning sandwiches like all the time. It's <laughs> burning the grilled cheese. Everybody's yeah, forgetting like, to flip it and yeah, <laughs> like black side and uncooked side. <laughs> It's like, like making it with the iron, like iron open sandwich, face, like ironing board. sandwich. Yeah, no mayo. Like his <laughs> his wife's dead, and his maid goes away for a month. Like, what does he do with himself? Just like not he disappears into his laboratory, but wears the same pants again and again. So, we should talk a little bit about the technology that pops up in this chapter because there's some, like we were, we were touching on it before we started recording, but. There's this uh, voice recorder, which yeah, it's almost like Isomoff captured the text to you know speech to text technology that we're familiar with today, where you can talk into your phone and it writes out what your words are. Usually, pretty close. Yeah, um, and he talks about it as this. Um, I forget what they. But call it's a typewriter. It. But it's basically it it had it yeah it's it's a dictation machine and you you speak whatever you say around it when it's on, it writes it out and it's like all about how it does it in like nice calligraphy and all this kind of stuff, and then I was like oh he kind of like you know hit the nail on the head here almost until I read the final like sentence of that chapter and he talks about how. It was on a piece of paper, so she couldn't, like, correct it or change it once it was written. So once you dictate to this machine, it just records it, and it's unchangeable. So he didn't quite figure that there would be some editing function in the machine like this. It would just be something that printed, and it was done. So we're still still in the world of print and paper and all this kind of stuff. It's not a word processor. Yeah, yeah. It's just a system. It's an elegant typewriter. Yeah, it's just you know you can take dictation and they'll type it out for you without actually having to type it yourself, which is great, I guess. And they, well, the thing that I thought was funny even before that that I highlighted was sort of like they um, he's using a book viewer, like you know, he says her lips tightened as she thought of her father looking up from his book viewer just long enough to say, but. But if you're going to pretend you're 19, Arcadia, what will you do when you're 25 and the boys will think you're 30? He's basically got, like, essentially a tablet per se, you know, <clears throat> that's a, not paper. It doesn't say it's not paper, but you assume it's like some kind of screen that is a book viewer that he's able to read on. But at the same time, you know, the next paragraph, it's like literally a dictation machine that spits out paper. Right. So like, oh, well, I think it's like, so close. I envisioned more like microfiche. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Like the big Probably. machine that yeah. is like you have the book, it's on like tiny, tiny film, Mind and you have to like it. crank the the <laughs> the roll of the uh, of the film <laughs> through to search. Like there's no you know digital search function. It's like you have to no, look at the pages and smaller. And there's you usually an index, and you can atom. go to go to slide whatever three hundred and forty two or three thousand and seventy five, yeah. and start your search. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, that one was funny. And then the yeah. trash to Cinto, which apparently trash is like shorthand for 
the new, I'm assuming it's like the nucleic ashtray type deal. Yeah, yeah, so this is like what probably the seventh iteration after Inber's, you know, trash disintegrator, yeah, nucleic. Hexagon, <laughs> hexagon, <laughs> the latest model. The latest model is the Desinto. Aren't they ever worried about like the fumes that come out of these things? Like you just like incinerate this thing using like some kind of nuclear fusion, and then you know, presumably there's going to be some kind of arid vapors that come out of this thing. They're just like throwing whatever they want into that thing. They just have adequate yeah. uh, iodine in their diets to protect their thyroid from absorbing radioactive isotopes. They're throwing all those vegan like cigarette butts in there to like disintegrate them. <laughs> all that fiberglass in the air can't be good for you. No, but that nucleic uh, tobacco um, vapors is it's got to be good, right? That's good for the atmosphere. It's it's, it's good and good for you. You bring that it's up. Your it's your T zone. I'm told. They don't, you know, they have this group of guys meeting, and obviously the second foundationers don't appear to smoke, and you know the Darrell and his group don't, don't appear to smoke. I'm very alarmed. Either. How long has it it's been since we've about people smoking? That's what I'm saying. So I think there was another piece of technology that we should visit because there's also like a human um, manipulation story behind it, and that's the voice recorder that she swindles the kid in her class who she doesn't like but pretends she likes so that he gives her the like his o- opus technology project of this voice recorder this homemade voice recorder which she uses to spy on her dad and his friends yeah. and then like just like very quietly fades away from that relationship so as not to alarm him that she was just in it for the voice yeah, recorder. totally in it for the voice recorder which obviously <laughs> I thought that was interesting you know you know, she's like a master seductress at 14, right. too. She's only after one thing, my voice recorder. <laughs> yeah. My super cool time. voice recorder. I just imagine that it's like a reel-to-reel system, too. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> that's what the thing is, like, how, how big is it that they can, he just hides it and they don't notice that it's there. It cuts and, it permanently uh, into wax, like, in real time. But, like, <laughs> like fine, the microphone is small, so they it's a little bug. But, like, then, like, the actual recording device, you know, like, in her room, he comes up after, like, the thing where she they she goes, he goes to get her to do the brain scan on her, and she, like, stops the recorder. But it's, like, she, like, this gargantuan thing in this room. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, she, just put it under this blanket, like. Maybe scales started to come into the sheets. picture. Yeah. <laughs> like hide them under her. Yeah, it's like a giant scarecrow. Oh, it's just a scarecrow in the corner of my room. Don't mind this at all. But I guess maybe because Doctor Drill is who he is, like just completely oblivious to everything going on in the world. Anyway, <laughs> just like if there's ever a person you want to be hiding, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's in just plain sight, just stand corner. next to Doctor Drill. Yeah, I won't yeah. even notice you. Sure, whatever you say, son. No problem. Daughter. I would think the maid would have picked up on it though. She was back by then. You know, it's like she's yeah. she's back for like a week, and then that's when Arcadie dips out. Well, she probably you know? is smart enough to know that Arcadie's the one she probably wants to be on the good side of because you know Darrell's got to kind of loosely managing the operation. You know, it's not gonna be for too long before he's he's she's sort of busy expecting. nerding out in his laboratory. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you know, he's out in his brain laboratory doing Lord knows what. You know, I, I guess we really don't find out what his specialty is, do we? His Specialty is the the brain stuff. Oh, it is? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Encephalograms. It's the exact uh, study that the Second Foundation is uh, concerned about. 
him in the, I he was in just the previous and the previous mentor of uh yeah, Phineas what, Reith, or whatever his or name, whatever Areth- his name is. Aretha Arethana. It kind of makes yeah. sense, right? Like what's, Beta what, was Arthur kind of like what's more what's, attuned, right? Yeah. What's funny so, like, is that her that son chapter continues. where they all get together, the chapter is called the conspirators or the co-conspirators. Well, and it's the, like Arcadia is the co-conspirator, right? I guess. Unconsenting at... co-conspirator. The conspirators, yeah. But I was my assumption is they were talking about Darrell and Anter and you know the rest of his five months. Now there's years. always like a another layer to that. Those yeah, like, you never know. Games, right. So there's uh, you know there there's a chance that Isamov got a sense of scale akin to what he applied to nucleics, you know, being like micro size and thumb size. Maybe he realized at some point, like, hmm, maybe electronics could also follow that pattern. And I don't know, something the size of maybe an AirPod could serve as a listening device. And so maybe he's assuming that we can extrapolate the size of this listening device technology, something portable and and uh, easily concealable. Just throwing that Maybe. out there. I, I'd like to make a correction that I just brought up when I was just looking through the, the conspirators section. They were talking about them gathering together and they say, when the seventh evening came and five men sat in the Durrell living room with food within and tobacco without, there it's quite go. unrecognizable home product of this ingenuity. So tobacco without. I knew. I thought I had seen something in there, but I assume you. they just. That means they're eating the food inside and smoking the tobacco outside. Or I think so. Like, yeah, that's what I got. Oh, thank Sorry. God! I didn't highlight it. Went too fast. I was very concerned there that you want to talk about things and signs that the foundation's going off track. <laughs> There's your remove tobacco. Things are going out the think, rails. They have the course correction that would be required by the second foundation to get them back smoking. <laughs> all the subliminal messaging. Right, right. All the all the camel, Lord Joe Lords. Camel cool posters. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. The kids they bring in is not a psychologist, she's like a marketing expert. Be like, what do we get the kids back on the smoke for? <laughs> Billboards outside of life. Joe Camel. The, the sec- foundation, foundation elementary schools. Oh. <laughs> snuff. We need snuff. We need cigars. Come on. <laughs> think, think, people. Think. We're psychologists. Warning. Consumption of this product may make you cool. Make you super <laughs> cool and desirable. <laughs> Warning. Smoking, smoking this product will get you all of the recording devices that you want. <laughs> Friendship accommodations. Good recovery there, Dan. Thanks for that catch. So now we're... They're a day away from from Calgan, from landing on the planet and starting their search for Mulania, Muliana, Muliana, like Juliana, except with Mule, <laughs> Muliana in uh, on Calgan. So for next week, we're going to tackle the next three chapters, twelve through fourteen. Those are called Lord, Lady, and Anxiety. So that should be an interesting journey. And then regroup before we go through the grid. Any closing thoughts, gentlemen? I just keep wondering where, you know, when are we going to find out where the second foundation is, right? And where is the, um, you know, the prime radium? Like, where are these two things located? And 
Um, I mean, is is the second foundation's cause really noble, right? Uh, or is it really sinister? It's hard for me to imagine that um, Selden would really set up like another conflict as a means of saving the empire, right? Or saving humanity. Well, but at the same time, like, how much can you possibly control? You know, it's what, 400 years ago? You know, he's just, he's setting the beams, and I guess he set the course, and then he's got, you know, the first foundation is like the course adjustment, and then the second foundation is like the fine adjustment, just kind of like. Yeah, and these are people, to your point, Dan, these are people who are fixing his mistakes. So they're at least in his league. Maybe they're better psychohistorians than he is, even though he made this groundbreaking, you know, um, picture of the future through his psychohistory. Maybe he recognized that it still required, like, you know, he had to be kind of the the giant that let others stand on his shoulders to really get to the point where the psychohistory view of the future was clean and clear and achievable. Um, I, I think you're right. It's, it could have gone like the, the morality of the current psychohistorians is not clear, right? Have they deviated from the morality of Selden or was Selden's morality in the plan pure from the beginning? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe there was some sinister or sacrificial, you know, element of his plan that was not necessarily generous to the future of humanity as much as we'd like to uh, believe that it was. It's a good question. I mean, at, at one point, don't they actually, doesn't the first speaker actually claim that they know more than Selden ever did? Like, either in ability or... Um, well, probably. I mean, you got to think. Like, imagine. It's like somebody, you know... Somebody nowadays talking that somebody who was like pre like a colonist in America it's 400 years ago, 350 mm-hmm. years ago, you know, somebody like the 1750s. Like, I should hope you know a lot more about, you know, biology than somebody in 1750 or hope you know a lot more about, you know, electronics than somebody in 1750. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. I would hope that, you know, if they haven't been able to advance at all, anybody, you know, sure there was geniuses in you know 1750, but like. You know, the idea that, like, you know, the, some of the, you know, Ptolemy and these people that were, like, 100 years ago, like, they're geniuses, but what are you going to do? You'd imagine somebody's better than them. I think we have the same kind of sentiment. We're, like, starting to question, like, the uh, the second foundation. We're wondering where things go from here. Does the first foundation's conspirators get discovered? Can Arcady carry us into the future? In a, in a way that is beneficial for humanity. I think we'll have to keep reading to find out. Yeah, I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah, there's a couple of different arcs that are pretty pretty nicely set up for hopefully some kind yeah. of conclusion. Yeah, yeah. And Peter's, Peter's loving Isomov these days, it seems like. You know, I'm, he's really stepped into his own as a yeah, proficient Yeah, that writer. pep talk was key, you know. And, I knew if I just in the rip of space down. time that went back 50 years to get his act together, he really got yeah, his act I kn- together. I knew if I kept like being condescending, like as like a true 1950s parent, like said like get your act together, yeah, that he would do that. Whippersnapper, do better. Yeah. Well, we are growing with Asimov, 
as we or Isamov or Isaac Asimov or whatever you want to call him, as we are reading his books and he is growing and the story is becoming more interesting. I think it's a good it's good momentum we got here. So thank you to all of our listeners for joining us this week. And uh, we will look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody.